0: Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today we've got a great guest, Isaac Strulowitz. Isaac, you're part of an organization called CoVenture. Tell me a little bit more about yourself and Coventure.
1: Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Isaac. I'm the CFO of Coventure. Coventure invests across the capital stack of both early stage as well as later stage companies. I went to Yeshiva University, loved it there, where I majored in accounting. From there, started out my career in the big four on the tax side. And to be honest with you, I was not one of these kids that was going to networking events or career fair night, I went into tax because simply put, that's where the most of the job opportunities were at the time and thought I would kind of figure it out as I was there. Was fortunate enough to work with a really great team, but realized that early on didn't really want to major in A1's tax preparation. And while appreciated having those set of skills, it was there that I identified that I would have loved to eventually lead my own finance team and become a CFO. And Right before my senior bonus was to hit, thankfully an opportunity had come up at a large institutional asset manager where I was able to really expand my skill set. I learned a lot about how funds operate, investor reporting, accounting. And from there was able to really see, you know, the best in class do it. And the co-venture opportunity came up a couple of years in. They had been looking to replace their VP of finance, who was in a couple months, was looking to launch his own company, joined the firm really in its infancy. For me, it was seemed like a perfect landing spot. First of all, CoVenture at the time was seemed like they were on the precipice of really creating a new asset class for early stage tech enabled companies and an alternative to venture funding, non-dilutive capital that was also not venture debt. They were doing these asset backed loans, and it seemed really exciting. On top of that, the team was just tremendous and I'm thankful to have been made partner a year ago and formally joined the partnership. But for me, it just seemed like a great spot to be at, to hopefully be at this place for a long time. And it just seemed like the obvious move. I also was am good friends with an individual who's on the board that made the transition easy. I joined in January 2018 and the firm invested in startups, but very much operated as a startup. And there was a bit of a culture shock joining from two institutional places to coming to what was then a startup manager. I remember I had asked an individual, one of my coworkers, a question about benefits. And he turned around and said, I don't know, you tell me. So it was a bit of a culture shock joining and realized how much responsibility you have when you're responsible for the finance function and became CFO formally about you know, a little under two years later, became, really entered that role earlier than I thought but was grateful for it. And I learned a lot along the way and hopefully played a role in the firm's success to becoming the institutional asset manager that, that we are today.
0: Brilliant. And that's a very, very rapid rise into the CFO role. Now, what sort of challenges did that give you? You're there as a brand new CFO, having risen through the ranks very, very quickly. Where did that put you? Sort of, how did you feel about that person? What were the big things you had to learn?
1: I had to learn a lot very quickly. I was thankful. I did not have a great commute to the office. And I remember literally reading textbooks, watching YouTube videos on top of that annoying <laughs> Sevenid thing who worked with us, who, you know, was experienced and leaning on kind of mentors that I had for questions. But I think a lot of it had to do with just being really in the weeds early on and not just in the weeds. The great thing about being at an investment management firm is you're really touching all parts of the business, right? Our funds, our management company. And in those early years and kind of early months, I had to be in the weeds, and that allowed me to learn the business really well and to build out the infrastructure. So I think the challenges was then being in a leadership role, dealing with investors more, dealing with employees more, right? and realizing that there are just a lot more stakeholders that you're dealing with. I always say that in this role, you're always trying to strike the balance in creating the most value for obviously our investors, but also our portfolio companies, our employees our vendors, right? You kind of want the tide to lift all boats, so to speak. And I think becoming a CFO, that kind of allowed me to think more strategically like that.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. So over that period of time, CoVenture itself has been growing. It's clearly changed a lot from the point that you joined. So what sort of scale of growth was that?
1: It was pretty rapid. I mean, we started out in venture capital Really, like micro early stage. I mean, I think our first one was really small and had a sort of unique strategy within venture where we were building out software in exchange for equity. From there, we really saw this opportunity on the credit side where the fintech companies within our portfolio were resistant to use their venture capital financing to go out and originate loans themselves. And that's where we kind of saw this opportunity to come in and figure out a creative way to finance the loans that they were originating. And we started doing this SPV by SPV, which means that we didn't have a dedicated fund. It was really more, we had an opportunity. We fundraised around it. For obvious reasons, it was inefficient to do this. And and what we were doing, and when I joined, we were really trying to build up that track record to get us to the point where we were able to do that. And that was in May 2019. We were able to launch our first dedicated vehicle. From there, we were able to mature in a way and lower our cost of capital kind of move beyond tech enabled companies to more mature companies and then from there really allowed us to invest across the capital stack to firm that we are today and i think a lot of that has to do with the great investor experience hopefully that we provide i always say that the product so to speak is hopefully the return that we target and the wrapping paper, so to speak, is the investor experience. That's something that I've emphasized a lot around here. The co venture team, if they're listening to this, it's probably rolling their eyes. But I think that kind of helps create the flywheel. And again, I think it took a unique team, right? We were operating pretty leanly for a while. I was the only dedicated person on the finance team until somewhat recently. You know, it also involved hiring great vendors. We had to play money for a little bit and we're able to find really outstanding fund administrators, tax preparers, advisors. And I think as the firm has grown, we're constantly reevaluating, looking at things. Well, if this made sense in 2018, does it really make sense in the year 2023? And you're always looking in the mirror and trying to see where you can improve and continue that growth trajectory.
0: So back in 2018, you were virtually the only full-time finance person. How many people have you got in your team today?
1: We have enough people where I've lost count. I think we're good answer. (laughs) Yeah, I believe we're twenty eight full time equivalents, so we're in the high twenties and continuing to grow.
0: Yeah. So, in terms of picking up the leadership skills to manage that sort of team and that rapidly growing team, how's that been?
1: It's been. I've learned a lot, and I think personally, I've found myself in leadership roles, not just in in my career, but you know, on the basketball court. I was in high school the team captain. I was not the most talented player on the team but i think for whatever reason i think it's sort of a three pronged approach for me the first is obviously competence your team has to think that you're good at your job that's the most important and then number 2 is you need to have humility and i think that really resonates right and humility is not to me understating your ability it's actually on the contrary if you're the best at fundraising or FPA in the firm, like you should run at it and not be shy. I think it's the ability to admit when you've made a mistake, the ability to tell people on the team, hey, this is how we're doing it now. If you could think of a better way, of course, we'll do that. I tell our individuals on our finance and ops team when they first join, we go through training and I always tell them, like, if you could think of a better way to do something, like, I'm certainly open to it. And then the third is empathy. So I sit down with, everyone on our team once a week to go over their goals, anything on their mind that they want to discuss other than my kids' well being, their well being is something that I'm always thinking about. So I think those three competence, humility, and then empathy, for me, they're sort of the three guiding principles. You know, the other part is like I remember in the Michael Jordan documentary that came out during COVID, he said something great about leadership to me, which was never asked anybody in my team to do something I didn't do myself. And I don't think, you know, I try to work hard we ask a lot of people on our team and thankfully they deliver. But I think that's also important. You don't want to be seen and not being in the trenches, so to speak, with the team. So that's definitely part of it as well.
0: Yeah. That quote, and, and never ask your team to do something you could do yourself. And that was something that I was taught many, many years ago by my father, who was also a chartered accountant. And he was working in practice and literally he did know how to do literally everything that everybody in the office did. But I followed that for quite a number of years, but then increasingly I found myself managing people that I didn't have the skills to do their job. So that that must be a a big one coming up for you as the team's getting bigger. Yeah, you did everything in there originally, but there must be roles now where you don't have the knowledge to do kind of have that same management style.
1: Oh, for sure. And I think a lot of it also has to do with, uh, you know, I'm an observant Jew, so for 25 hours every weekend, I'm literally quite in the dark. I don't have phone access or I don't look at my email. And I tell everybody my team, look, I'm doing that. So you should definitely make sure that you're taking time off and trying to unplug and and unwind for a little bit. But yeah, and definitely as the team has grown, I'm looking for people that complement my skill sets and areas where I can improve. We brought on two individuals in the last year with really strong tax backgrounds. And it's been a pleasure working with them on fun tax structuring projects. and. I do like to have a diverse team that has a wide set of skills, but definitely, yeah, as I'm growing and as the team is growing, it definitely not just adds value to the finance team, but to the whole broader co venture team overall.
0: Yeah, one of the things that we decided before we started this conversation be useful to to get you on the show to talk about Isaac was the that whole crisis going on in the banking sector at the moment. Has that what's going on with that? turmoil in that sector? How's it affecting you?
1: Yes. So I think things happened very quickly in mid-March. I remember that day where SVB, the stock, was beginning to decline. That was a Thursday, I believe. And just seeing how I was in college at the time, I believe, during the last banking crisis, and never really envisioned living through that. Thankfully, CoVenture was positioned well we had insured cash sweeps accounts, and our portfolio companies were similarly not overly exposed. That weekend was when things started to feel amiss. There hadn't been at that point like clear guidance from the FDIC. That Saturday night, something didn't feel right. And people that I was talking to, it seemed like everybody was going to be pulling out their money from whatever bank they were at, whatever regional banks they were at, and pulling them into SIFIs or systematically important financial institutions. And that Saturday night, Thankfully, we were able to open up 20-something accounts at a SIFI brokerage accounts and kind of mobilize the whole team over the weekend just as a precautionary step to make sure that the firm was best prepared. We're always thinking as fiduciaries for RLPs and for commitments that we make to our portfolio companies. And just wanted to make sure that in the event anything went further south that Monday that we were prepared and that our cash was in a secure place. So I had sent around an email that Saturday night. It was 11 PM. and said, look, I'm going to be opening. filling out all the paperwork for all of these accounts. If anybody wants to join me, you can. If not, don't worry about it. I know you guys have lives outside of work. And I was thankful that a ton of people stepped up. It was also the night that we changed the clocks here. And I remember looking at my computer screen and be like, oh my gosh, how did it turn into four o'clock in the morning? But it was... We're to lose an hour. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But we were thankfully fine. And I think now the lesson is diversification. So all of our entities, we have a primary account, a backup account, a brokerage account, so that in the event something goes amiss, we can transfer funds relatively quickly and easily, hopefully. And I think broadly, we started thinking more about risk management overall. Who are our key vendors? What kind of risk do we have there? Do we have a backup ready to go? in the event they go out of business quickly or something that we can't even envision. I think that was the thing that stayed with me the most is that here, everybody was caught flat-footed, the regulators. I think clearly the banks were caught flat-footed. So I think you're always trying to look around corners. But in particular, I think that was the biggest takeaway for me. And now that things have settled down, I think it's on the contrary, Now is the time to be continuing to think about what else can go wrong in the business? And that's something that, like, literally every day I'm thinking about where are we vulnerable? Where are our funds vulnerable? How can we make sure that we're best protected? So that's been the learning. Thankfully, now it seems like things have stabilized, but you never know. And I think that was the main takeaway.
0: So, risk management's very much become more of a priority in the business.
1: Certainly. I think risk management is definitely in vogue again. On top of that, operational discipline, I think it was easy to not be as careful. During better times when venture capital funding was plenty, I think now you're seeing CFOs begin to take risk management even more seriously than they had, and I think that's really kind of the lessons of the last year: tighter FP&A practices, tighter budget settings, as well as diversifying key relationships and just making sure that if there's a, another rainy day or whatever the case is, that we're well protected.
0: Mm, yeah. That kind of drops into two parts, isn't it? There's What can we put in place to mitigate that rainy day, to stop the rainy day happening? And then there's the flip side of that. So the rainy day comes along. What do we actually do?
1: That's right. Yeah. There are some macro factors that are just beyond our control. Clearly, I don't think anybody, like I said, saw what was going to occur with SVB and sort of the fallout from there and what would happen with regional banks afterwards. But I think all you can do is best prepare yourself and make sure that in the event the rainy day comes, you have a plan ready. And I think we've done a great job. Elizabeth Ostrander, my colleague, is always thinking about risk. So it's just something that, thankfully, like I said, we were somewhat well-prepared. It was just really taking this extra cautionary step just because of how quickly things were moving, sort of the broad panic that we were able to sense over that weekend. Hmm.
0: So you have a risk register.
1: We do. We do have a risk register. We go through everything in the entire firm at both the fund level and GP level. And then one thing that we're in the process of doing now actually is preparing backup vendors, which is something that we realize we use some smaller vendors for certain activity and just making sure that we're well-protected and diversified. So it is something that we put together. And like I said, really in the last month, six weeks or so, it's been even more of a focus.
0: Yeah. So how often... Do you think you should be reviewing that risk register? Is that something that you should be doing virtually every board meeting?
1: I think for us, we're still trying to map that out. I think a quarterly basis feels right. Every week or every two weeks, rather, I meet with our executive committee and we discuss exactly what the biggest risks are in the firm. But as a formal process, it's probably something that we're going to be doing quarterly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So
0: if you're advising other CFOs that are thinking, well, we haven't paid much attention to risk, now we're not really talking about risk at board level. Where would you advise them to start?
1: I think specific to each company, I think you have to realize do you have an overly concentrated revenue source? We always talk about here like building the cockroach, making sure that we're not overly diversified to one investor, one portfolio company, one vendor. I think it's about seeing where those vulnerabilities are in your business model and then devising a plan to make sure that you're diversified and what's it going to take to get there and then build that out.
0: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything else sort of the current economic climate, anything else that you think the CFO should be worrying about?
1: I think AI has, there was a lot of whiplash, I think in November, I have a brother in college and he was telling me that this tool, ChatGPT has been really helpful and then I think we all saw the amazing capabilities it has, and now just yesterday I think the cover of the Wall Street Journal, IBM slashing eight thousand jobs because of AI, and just how quickly everything's moving there is just something to be mindful of as a way of perhaps headcount planning, maybe different if we keep up this trajectory. I think that's something that CFOs should be mindful of. And then, like I said, it's just right now we're in a bit of a credit crunch. Equity funding has seemingly been drying up. And the operational discipline and to try to get to cash flow positivity organically, I think, is something that has changed very quickly in the last year or so. I think now CFOs who are grew up during the era that I did, this is sort of new territory for us.
0: Yeah, certainly that's used to having long cash runways, the need to show a profit not being imminent has been the world we've been in for a few years now. And yeah, definitely, even before the kind of current crisis that you're talking about sparking up in March, definitely we were getting the impression of funds were getting tighter a long time before that. So yeah, certainly cash, cash is king more than ever before.
1: Yeah, that's right. There was a great slide actually in SVB's deck, an infamous one that caused the panic that showed their deposits shrinking largely due to still elevated cash burn. So a little bit better than where it had been. But also the slide right under it was showing declining venture investment. And I think that was kind of a great summary of what was causing a lot of panic that day.
0: So you know, we've talked about what's been happening over the last few months. Looking forward a year, two years into the future, do you see things getting tighter? Do you see things loosening back up again?
1: Wow. I wish I knew that answer. I think it depends. It sounds like the Fed is going to kind of top out at the rates that we're at hopefully soon. And it sounds like the economy is still strong. So I'm glad I'm not the one making those decisions. But I think as CFOs, what we can do is prepare for the worst. I always say that being a CFO is almost like running your watch five minutes fast, right? You want to be a slightly more conservative. I think a lot of us I've noticed tend to be more operationally conservative. And that's how we kind of end up in these roles. You're trying to be the protector of the firm. So I think we should assume that it's still going to be a winter out there. You don't want to inhibit growth. It's about striking that balance and seeing where you're still able to invest in the firm, what is truly ROI positive. So you should still be trying to weed out the excess in your budget where you can and assume that things are going to stay. You know, it's still going to be winter out there, but you don't want to inhibit growth. It's striking that balance. And like I said, keeping your watch five minutes fast is the analogy I like to use.
0: That's a good analogy. You've been through quite a career moving into co venture as the only finance person, building out a team of 20 plus people, and going through the real economic change that's happened during that time. Just what would you be advising to? aspiring CFOs, people that might not have got that first CFO role yet. How would you advise an aspiring CFO, given all that you've experienced?
1: It's a great question. Just yesterday, I was talking to a kid at my alma mater that I've been mentoring. And he mentioned something to me that he wants to be a CFO, but he doesn't like doing the accounting. And I told him, no, it's the opposite. You should you should love the accounting, right? That is the foundation. You should build upon it, but having a firm understanding, being in the details. And that allows you to... Once you have that, you can build upon that and see the whole picture and to understand how to interpret financial statements. I can't tell you how many times I've been looped into things with either portfolio companies of ours or investors of ours because of that sort of specialty. And from there, that enabled me to unlock... FP&A skills that I didn't even know that I had when I was building out the firm's operating model. That was all because of my accounting skills, and I think the core theme there is the kind of obsession with the details. That's really the best way to elevate it and to grow. And for me, that's how it enabled me to get into the seat is because I understood every aspect of the business to the point where initially was brought into board meetings when I was not formally the CFO just to answer questions that they had, and then you know, I think they said, hey, he's pretty good at this. And that was kind of how I got promoted, I think. So my advice is always embrace the details, understanding how everything weaves together. And then the other part of being a CFO is you're a storyteller. That's the other side is you have to learn the communication skills. And what I've learned over the years is that weaving together a narrative... Now, the narrative has to be backed by the numbers. is sort of an art form in itself. The ability to take all this information, all these KPIs... And for me, it's KPIs both at the management company, all of our funds, and then weave it together into a coherent narrative so that you're telling the story of what's going on. But again, the only way to do that is to be in the weeds at first. And then once you have a team to kind of know when to be in the weeds, when to take yourself out, that's the advice I have. The thing
0: is that that's storytelling. Yeah. The detail of the numbers, that is stuff you learn to pass your exams, but... Those soft skills, the storytelling skills, the interpersonal skills and everything like that are all things that you never learned when you qualified to be a chartered accountant, a CPA or whatever you are. And that's where the challenge comes, isn't it?
1: Totally. It's funny. When COVID first hit and we went remote and I found myself with all this extra time, I started putting together our KPI deck, which at its peak was about 60 pages, which was I was even like creating KPIs, like for every dollar invested, what does that translate into management fee revenue? And, you know, having that extra time allowed me to think more creatively. And that was in those early days when I really kind of was building that muscle of the storytelling. And over time, I've been telling myself, yeah, I don't know if this KPI is really relevant where we are now. It was when we were kind of a startup. But yeah, I'm always trying to think about the best way to tell the story in a way that is efficient. So I'm not standing there and going over minutia, but you know the key aspects of what our stakeholders care about, which is largely yes, top line fee revenue, operating performance, and cash. For me, cash will always be king, even as we grow. So those are kind of the three buckets that I try to create a narrative for and frame our KPIs with that.
0: Isaac, you're talking there about having extra time because of of working remotely in COVID. Now, I think you need extra time. You need a certain amount of thinking time, let's say, to be creative in the CFO role. As things have got back to more normal working patterns, how have you managed to maintain that thinking time?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. When we first went remote, I think we were all Taken aback by how much more productive we were. I remember there were times in early April 2020 and in March 2020 when I would be at my laptop all day, we'd go downstairs really just for meals and bathroom breaks and was amazed at how much was able to get done. And I think it was easier for us as a smaller team working remotely. As we've grown, sometimes things can get lost in translation. It's harder to get everybody on the same page, especially when we're scattered across the country and people in different time zones. I think one thing I've tried to keep is creating the time to allow me to do my best work. For me, that is very early in the morning. I'm usually at my laptop around 5.20, 5.30-ish. And to have that quiet time that I had during COVID, I'm I'm trying to recreate now. As the team has grown, there's a lot more activity. My 9 to 5, so to speak, is just consumed with calls, meetings, etc. And I think it's about trying to find those quiet pockets of time during the day that You know, where you're able to do your best work. That for me, that's what works. It's not necessarily for everybody. And on top of that, I'm able to see my kids a lot more this way. I remember when I was going to the office and my daughter at the time was a newborn. I really only saw her on weekends because when I leave, she'd be sleeping. When I came home, she'd be asleep. I remember one Sunday I saw her and realized, oh, she's pretty cute. So for me, working from home has been great. I always put my kids to bed and do bath time. That was something I was not able to do. I think, though, we're trying to figure out what the right hybrid model looks like. It's challenging because we're across a country, but I think whether or not we'll have satellite offices or eventually have a centralized office, you know, I think that's something that we're still trying to talk through and figure out.
0: Yeah. And there's an interesting balance to be had there between you know, the things that you just do as an individual, sitting there with your laptop, getting on with stuff versus the stuff that's kind of got to be done in a much more co-working situation where you're interacting with other people. Some of the interacting you can do over Zoom calls, but there's some of it you just can't replace having people face-to-face. So it's a very, very interesting balance to be trying to work towards.
1: That's right. And I think what we've done instead of being in person is we have off-sites that are every quarter. It's mostly cultural and not as much. I mean, we do have calls and meetings there and it is good to see everyone's face, but it's mostly just to be in person and remind ourselves what it was like when we were all working together. So we've been trying to replicate that as best we can, and we're going to figure out what the best type of hybrid model, if we go that route, is. But for now, the offsites every quarter have to tried to fill that void.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Now, you've given us today, Isaac, a fascinating view into the world that you're in in co venture, the economy and how you're coping with at the moment some great advice about risk management and some really really good advice to other cfos and other wannabe cfos isaac thank you hugely for being this week's guest on the grow cfo show
1: thank you it was a pleasure